I'm Paul Brady, regional editor at The Cork Report, and this is my podcast, Northern Wine Odyssey, part of The Cork Report Podcast Network. To listen, search Cork Report in Google or your podcast app of choice. Quick note about Open Local Wine, that's coming up next weekend, April 10th. You've heard me talk about this ad nauseum, but uh, just one last reminder. Most local wineries, wherever local is for you, are hanging on through the pandemic through a combination of loyal wine club members, online orders, and a big dose of creativity. Wineries have been able to stay afloat over the past 10 months when their tasting rooms were either closed or significantly restricted. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a lover of local wines, and the wineries that make all the wines that we love need our help. The team at Cork Report Media and I hope that you'll join us next weekend, April 10th, 2021, for Open Local Wine Night, a celebration of exactly that local wine. It's easy to participate. Just buy some local wine, open it on April 10th, and post a picture on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook with the hashtag OpenLocalWine. It is really as easy as that. And wineries, I think your time is up to get your promo out there, but hopefully everybody took advantage of this uh, great promotion to get the word out. I've seen a lot of really, really good deals, so that is very cool. And I think, listeners, there's probably still time to uh, take advantage of some of the Two packs, three packs, four packs, etc. with uh, free shipping, shipping included, or discounted shipping, whatever it is. Check out the deals at the Cork Report homepage, and we'll see you on April 10th. Today on the podcast, sommelier Brooks Frazier on the transition from living and working in New York City to the Adirondacks region. We also get, get into uh, a good conversation about up north recreation around the Adirondacks for the winter, for the upcoming summer, camping tips, lodging tips, all sorts of great stuff. I'm really enjoying these types of episodes. Be sure to look back on the episode that I did with Brittany Gibson, who is the executive director of the Seneca Lake Wine Trail. Lots of good pointers there to help you organize your upcoming summer trip to the Finger Lakes. And then we're going to do episodes about the Hudson Valley Catskills regions, as well as Long Island. So here we go with Brooks Frazier. Welcoming Brooks Frazier to a Northern Wine Odyssey. Brooks, what's going on? Hello, Paul Brady. How are you? you, I'm well. Are you on site at your place of business? I am currently not. I am uh, at home in Lake Placid. Okay, so let's go back to, um, to last year prior to when you made the move from just prior to when you made the move from New York city to, uh, the Adirondacks. And I want to, I want to just chat about sort of that transition because obviously we're still in this pandemic and everybody's world has been flipped upside down and certainly including anybody in the restaurant and or service industry, So you had been in New York City working as a bartender, as a sommelier, as a beverage director for a number of years. Again, like I said, that world got flipped upside down and and everybody had to 
to shift and figure out what they were going to do, you went back home to the Adirondacks where you're originally from and then eventually took a job at what is called Hotel Saranac in Saranac, the town, the village of Saranac Lake, correct? Correct. Yep. Okay. So your last job in New York City, you are beverage director at Kraft, the Tom yes. Colicchio restaurant. You decide to get out of the city, go back home for a little bit, and then made another pretty big deal decision to, instead of sort of waiting it out and going back to the city to stay relocated up there while accepting this new position as, what is your title at the Saranac Hotel? Uh, Bartender. So your title is bartender, but you do have some administrative uh, roles there in in terms of managing and also buying, purchasing, and and selecting beverages for the program there. Correct. Yeah, I'm doing um, almost all well all the wine buying, almost all of the beer buying, and uh, also menu and aesthetics and some some administrative stuff. Yeah. Okay, so being from the region originally and regularly visiting your family and everyone up there, I, I gather that the there wouldn't really be any culture shock for you because you're very familiar with the area. But take us through the the sort of beginnings of your new and current job and touch on how it just some of the subtle differences that are operating a bar in a hotel on Saranac Lake in the Adirondacks versus in New York City. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was There was no culture shock. I was prepared um, being from here, um, but it was definitely a transition coming back after being away for so long. Um, I, I moved to New York in 2003, so I was away for 17 years. Um, I would say the one of the biggest uh, challenges coming into a position like this during a time like this was um, staffing and coming from a place where we're used to being very organized and there's all these standard operating procedures and trainings and opportunities and tastings uh, to learn and grow and educate and be with people in the industry and the community. Um, and obviously, again, this is through COVID, so a little bit different, but um, that was sort of the biggest uh, challenge for me coming, walking into Hotel Saranac was um, just not having that structure that I was used to and sort of um, have come to, had come to really appreciate. Yeah, I mean, I know from limit my little bit of experience working in the Finger Lakes that you know these these are for for as much as they are tourist areas and destination areas, they are remote, so it is hard to both recruit and maintain staff in hospitality organizations in these parts. So, and you know, I mean, the, New York City is really kind of a great place to be when when it comes to running hospitality businesses because there is such a large pool of qualified professionals to to work with. So paint the picture of Saranac Lake for us, just so we can understand exactly where you are. So the 
the the city, the setting, and how the hotel functions as a destination there. Yeah, absolutely. So I wasn't super familiar with the area before I moved up here um, beyond coming to the region to hike. So I grew up in Star Lake, which is a very small town about, it's a little over an hour, hour and a half from Saranac and Lake Placid area. Uh, So I was much more familiar with that area beyond just coming to visit. Uh, But we are in the high peaks area of the Adirondacks, uh, which is a, has been a destination for uh, hikers and uh, outdoor lovers for a long time. Um, And even more so uh, this past year with COVID, um, without the outdoors being uh, very appealing to people. Um, But Saranac Lake is, uh, you know, a small little town. There's a main street with uh, small businesses, coffee shops, clothing stores, bookstore, uh, sport shops, fishing supplies, uh, things like that, um, as well as, you know, some smaller um, bar and restaurants. Uh, And then, so that's Saranac Lake. Hotel Saranac sits in the middle of Saranac Lake. It is, you can see it coming um, up the road. There's, it's a very distinct building. Uh, there's the Hotel Saranac sign up on the top, uh, which during various points of its existence may have only lit up to say Hot Sarah. Um, so Hot Sarah is what the locals refer to the hotel as. And it's been a, an important part of the community since it was um, built in the 1920s. I believe it was 1927 that it was finished. And then they did um, the beautiful renovations uh, back in 2015. I think it ran. they ran for about three years, reopened in 2018. Uh, it is a historic building. Um, it's a last... Uh, last building standing of a bunch of hotels that were built back in the 1920s um, when people were coming up uh, to recover from tuberculosis. Uh, So it is definitely an important part of the community. And then, you know, I live in Lake Placid, which is about 15 minutes from Saranac Lake, um, which is a little bit bigger of a town, you know, has lots of Olympic um, facilities here um, because of the Olympics in 1980. Uh, so, and then if you go back the other way, there's also Tupper Lake, which Tupper Lake, Saranac Lake, and Lake Placid make up what is referred to as the Tri Lakes area. Okay, so this is this is a pretty big hotel. This is not a cute side of the road motel. We're 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 talking something of a destination hotel that. I think you mentioned to me once is now in some way connected to the Hilton group. Yes, that's correct. Uh, It is a curio um, hotel, which is Hilton's small boutique. Um, I believe one of the requirements is that it, it is a historic building, but I'm, I'm actually now that I'm saying that out loud, I'm not hundred percent sure that that's true, but um, definitely small, like smaller mid-sized boutique hotels. Um, It's a six story structure. Um, like I said, just very distinct. You can see it coming down the road and it always makes me smile coming around the corner when I see it. Okay. So we're talking full restaurant, full bar. You can make a reservation. There's probably in-room dining, 
all that sort of stuff. So now we're, of course, looking at this through the lens of COVID. So trying to, I, I suppose, just focus on the the normal basic aspects of of restaurant and bar service that remain in spite of COVID. What is it? How is it different working in a hotel setting in a resort area in a very remote rural resort area in comparison to working in a hotel setting, which uh, you've done in New York City? Well, I would say there is. I feel less pressure, and again, I don't. I'm not sure if that is because of COVID, but I feel the people that have been our guests and that I have taken care of at the hotel, um, for the most part are really excited and happy to be there. So there is a, just a different energy, I guess I would, that's how I would describe it. Um, but I will say that while we are building, um, a local, um, guest sort of, we're trying to attract local guests for sure. And I have, you know, several regulars and people in town that I've been meeting and that come in regularly to the, to my bar, um, as I refer to the great hall bar. Uh, and yes, you're correct. There's a full restaurant on the ground level. Um, and then the great hall bar, which is where I spend my time is on the second floor. Um, it's a big, beautiful room, super high ceilings with a terrace connected to it. Um, but I will say that uh, beyond getting those local guests to come in um, and, you know, have that sense of community of, of in Saranac, lots of people from downstate, lots of people from the city. I've met, um, you know, several couples uh, that have left mostly Brooklyn, actually, um, and have moved up here. Um, you know, I met a couple who moved from Brooklyn and bought a bed and breakfast and they're doing that. And I met, um, a woman who make, used to make jewelry in Brooklyn and now they've, she's relocated up here. Uh, so I do get these little bits and pieces of, you know, the people that I would have interacted with more likely in the city, uh, as well as local guests. So there's a nice mix. Um, yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that it's a little bit less stressful, which I, I want to go a bit more granular on. I remember I wait, spent a summer waiting tables at a busy seasonal restaurant in the Finger Lakes. And one of the, I, I had previously been in New York City. So this was sort of a break from New York City. I was up there doing some other winery and harvest kind of things while also waiting tables at this particular restaurant. And I remember sort of in my first uh, first or second night on the floor there, and it was busy thinking to myself, oh man, like I'm, I'm having a hard time keeping up and I'm looking around and my coworkers seem to be totally fine. And then I realized something, which was I was attempting to do everything in a New York City way, which was make sure every single table, and it was like a 10 table section. So a little bit bigger than a typical New York City fine dining section would be. And I was really trying to attend to everything. And I realized while I thought I was behind, I really wasn't because no one was demanding New York City attention. 
You know what I mean? I mean, we, we, anyone who's worked or lived in New York City knows that New York City breeds a certain kind of person. I mean, we're all at the mercy of waiting for trains every day. So it's like if someone's taking a long time to order their coffee in front of you, you start getting fidgety and anxious. And that feeling, because you don't need to catch a train, just doesn't really exist with people that are living in these more rural areas and probably to the people on vacation too. So it, I didn't need to feel that stress. I figured out on like night two and it became a little bit, that, that was very helpful in understanding that it is a very different feeling. Do you feel the same? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the, the, any stress that I feel it's, uh, it's a different kind of stress. It's stress because, it's self-induced. It, it, like you mentioned, like you have these standards and these expectations that have been um, ingrained in you over these years uh, of working in, you know, busy top New York City restaurants, and then you get up here, and I think the combination of it just being a sort of vacation resort vibe to some degree, and then also COVID, people are are much more patient for the most part. I mean, I can count on one hand since I've started, um, you know, back in late August, early September of times where I had negative guest interactions um, as far as having to wait or um, anything like that. People have been very understanding. Um, but yeah, for the most part, everyone's just a little bit more relaxed um, and and just the expect the, there's, you know, you're not, oh my goodness, I have to, you know, pull the cork in this 1982 Bordeaux and decant it. And there's, it's just different, you know, there, and I'm sure, you know, I, I have yet to really explore some of the other um, upscale places around the area. Um, and maybe there are places that do have that vibe, but I, I would guess that that's not the case. So it's just a different, you know, you, you don't have those guests that have, um, that, that sense of urgency and even entitlement, um, if you will. (laughs) So, okay. So you, you mentioned, you mentioned that you know that something like that that's different where you're working you're not working with these old and rare bottlings that take you know a good amount of time when it comes to to selecting and opening them what uh what are some of the some of the drinks that you're serving what are the wines what are the cocktails what are the beers what's different uh in terms of what the guests are looking for and also what you have to offer yeah so one of the things that appealed to me about this position uh, was when I spoke to the general manager of the hotel and the food and beverage director of the dining venues, they sort of pitched it as, you know, the Great Hall Bar would sort of be mine to some degree and that I would have some input um, on on the beverage list uh, which was very appealing to me. I was like, oh, I can be, you know, an hourly employee, part of a tip pool, but also make decisions like that. So that was very, the the opportunity to have that flexibility of being an hourly employee, but also having input was very appealing. So when I got there, uh, there were, there was a lot of inventory from 
previous um, beverage directors, there had been some changes right before COVID happened, and then they closed for a couple of months. So one of the things was sort of sorting through what they had there and deciding how to proceed as far as working through that inventory. So I sort of shifted from a lot of usual suspect sort of wines that you can get anywhere and where you can see anywhere. Um, I don't want to name any names, but um, you know what I'm what I'm saying, uh, to just more interesting things that people might not have had a chance to try. I think that's one of my favorite, it was one of my favorite things to do in the city was to introduce people to new wines that, you know, oh, you like Chardonnay, let's try the Chenin Blanc. So um, one of the things I did was to start a, to sort of shift that. And I really wanted to make sure that we had domestic wines and specifically um, New York wines uh, represented. So that was one of the first things I wanted to do. And the same with the beer. Um, I love beer. Uh, so we had, again, you know, all of these usual suspects sort of things. And while the draft lines were, um, the, the local breweries, there's a, there's a bunch of local breweries in the Tri Lakes area. Um, so they were sort of represented on the draft lines, but I thought we could do better and we're still striving to do better. So I sort of made a Northeast feature um, and we have packaging from, you know, New York, Vermont, Maine, um, and again, focusing the draft lines on these local breweries that are doing such a great job and that have grown. I've, you know, coming up here every, you know, summer to hike have got to see these breweries grow. So, um, I think having that at your fingertips and people want local when they're here, especially, you know, of course the locals know the local stuff and love to support it, but people coming from, um, especially the city and downstate love to see the local stuff. So that was uh, a big thing. And, you know, I'm always going to sort of impose to some degree my likes. We didn't have Cachaca or Mezcal or Amaro beyond Fernet. And I was like, got to change that. Got to get some Beaujolais, got to get some <laughs> Amaro. So those were some of the first things that I did when I uh, arrived at Hotel Saranac. And how is that all being received? Are, are people coming in and saying, hey, where's my blah, 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 nationally recognized Chardonnay? <laughs> or are people happy to just drink whatever you give them? No, people are very receptive uh, to it, um, which I love. Uh, I've had, you know, people that have, I, that, that have complimented the wine selections and just been like, I've never seen, a, you know, these selections um, up in this area and even asked me like how I was getting the wines. I was like, just, you know, through the available distributors up here. Um, so, and people, you know, we threw a Mezcal Negroni on the cocktail list and a Jungle Bird and people are very open to trying new things. And, you know, I think it's also about the interaction that you have with the guests. I, you know, did it back in New York and definitely do it here. When you make them feel comfortable and like it's low risk, if they're leaning towards something or they ask about something, I'm like, why don't you just try it? If you don't like it, we will get you something that you do. So 
and, you know, pouring tastes of wine, which um, I think might not be as much of a practice up here um, in small places, um, but is something that we always did as a step of service um, in the restaurants that I worked at in New York. So, um, yeah, it's been nice to see people be like, I don't know what Mezcal is, um, but be open to trying it. Um, and the Amaro, I will say, since I did mention that, is a little bit more of a challenge because people, people really have never, a lot of people have never heard of it. So I like to do that as a little, um, you know, something for nothing at the end of a meal, um, pour them a little bit. And I love to see the reactions of people. Most people love it. Um, there's a couple, you know, guests that are like, oh, it's not really for me, but um, it's always really fun for me um, and fulfilling to see people try something that they probably never would have tried otherwise, unless they have this, you know, woman pushing them to try it uh, and then actually really like it and then be like, oh my God, I have to take a picture of picture of that bottle and, you know, having that conversation of where can I buy this and letting them know, you know, if you have a good wine and spirit shop in your town that you are regular at, ask them to order it and they probably will. So you mentioned, I'm kind of curious as in terms of a step of service, when someone orders a glass of wine, do you pour them a taste of it first? I do. Yeah. Was that a practice that was in place before you got there? No, definitely not. <laughs> and, and I think people, people, some people don't know how to react. So I think that's, it's, it's a telling um, interaction when they just sort of look at you and I was like, Oh, just want to make sure that it's something that you're, you'll like. And some people wave you off and they're like, Oh no, no, it's fine. I'll drink anything. And you know, some people, I think you see their eyes sort of the realization and then they really appreciate it. And it it's, I've had people say, you know, at the end of a, um, of a meal, just that they were, they've never had service like that. Um, you know, at, well, at Hotel Saranac, um, but definitely, you know, it's, it's a nice, just something so simple that takes no extra time. Okay. What are your biggest sellers in terms of anything? Let's go across the categories, wine by the glass, beer, draft beer, bottled beer, whatever, and uh, mixed drinks. Yeah, I would say our, as far as cocktails go, um, we have a cocktail, a namesake cocktail called Hot Sarah. It is a gin-based cocktail with blood orange, um, a little bit of grenadine, which uh, we started making our our house grenadine to use in that cocktail once I arrived. Um, previously, they were using... Um, you know, roses, grenadine. Uh, and I liken that cocktail to a creamsicle. Um, it can, it, it's refreshing. It's delicious. It's easy. People, some people get afraid of the gin and ask for it to be made with vodka. Um, but I think, you know, with the blood orange and the grenadine, I mean, you can tell the difference, but it's, you know, it's a, it's an easy cocktail. And it's definitely uh, been, I think it's probably the number one seller. Um, although my colleague, uh, who is very a very talented bartender as well, she put on a cocktail that is tequila, mezcal, pomegranate 
with a little bit of sparkling, um, which she called Persephone's Curse. And that was super popular. So I think that was a really interesting way to get um, mezcal in front of people. Um, plus, it's this beautiful purple color and people, you know, see it go by and they're like, what is that? Um, so cocktails, I would say, you know, that and, you know, we still are selling plenty of vodka. Um, but I, I was surprised at how many people, lots of old fashions and Manhattans. And I think part of that could be that the Great Hall bar itself, just the setting sort of lends itself to, you know, the classics. So, and I love making those, those cocktails. So when someone asks for an old fashioned, every time I'm making it as if I was going to drink it myself, um, because I love an old fashioned, um, wine wise, I think, uh, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay, um, which we, I have a, a white Bordeaux on right now that has a little bit of Semillon in it, um, which is great. And people love that. Um, and then Chardonnay wise, we have a, a nice little organic Chardonnay, um, very affordable from, uh, Mendoza right now. Um, which I honestly didn't work and haven't worked a ton of with wines from South America. So that was a really fun one for me to discover and be able to share with people. Um, and red wine, you know, it's, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay are sort of the go-to's. And same thing with the reds, Pinot Noir and Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, but I will say, you know, I, I wanted the Pinot Noir to be domestic, domestic, and it is right now. We've had a couple of um, Oregon wines, um, which are, you know, people have come to know and love. Uh, and then the Cabernet Sauvignon, I sort of threw a curveball and got this cool wine from the Languedoc, which... I got to visit a couple of years ago and have, uh, you know, an affinity for, so, and it's just such an amazing, I know the over deliver freight, like that word is overused, but it really is. It's, it's a great wine, a great value. Um, and people have usually never had a Cabernet from that region of France. So it's nice to introduce people to that. Um, I've had people take pictures and come back and say, yep, we bought a case of it. Um, so yeah, that's fun. And then the beer is sort of um, uh, the local stuff, I think, really. Um, and I have brought in some of my also favorite um, breweries from the city. We have one of my favorite beers of all time, Three's Logical Conclusion in Package. And uh, that's a, an IPA. And that's actually, we couldn't keep that uh <laughs> in stock for a while because uh, another one of my colleagues also came from the city. Um, he grew up here and moved back around the same time that I did, um, as was the trend. And uh, his partner worked at Threes. So he also really loved Threes. So we were just selling Threes, logical conclusion. Um, but no, I have to say Racket River stuff, um, they're located in Tupper Lake. Um, you have Big Slide, which is actually right down the road from me, um, and Lake Placid uh, Brewery as well. So we have all of those things, and people ask for those. They they've they either are going to visit them while they're in the area, or they have visited them and they want to try a different um, beer that they haven't seen. So um, yeah, and then you know you'll always have your your Miller Lights and your your Coors Lights. So we'll have those for the people that um, want those as well. <laughs> 
Okay, so it sounds like it's it's pretty easy to drink for for anybody who walks into uh, Hotel Saranac. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I think part of finding that balance when you are making the buying decisions is finding the balance between, you know, I, I think I use the word imposing, which I, I do. I want to impose the, my likes on you to some degree um, because I know they're delicious and I, I like, you know, introducing people to new things, but you also have to have the things that people are familiar with. And I think having those um, available to people builds this relationship where they're like, okay, I know I can get this if I don't like this, but maybe I'll try this this time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very user-friendly. Is there anything that you've d- discovered that you absolutely have to have or that you sell way more of at this particular hotel in the Adirondacks versus any of the places you worked in the city? Huh. Um... Nothing comes to mind immediately. Yeah, nothing, nothing comes to mind immediately. I would say I would, the one thing that I just, that just made me think of were people are not really buying bottles of wine right now. And I don't know if that is just the nature of the dining experience right now with COVID or if it was like that before, I don't have, you know, a frame of reference from pre-COVID, but um, that's one thing that sort of um, I find surprising, um, which I guess is sort of the opposite of what you just asked me. <laughs> yeah, people sort of going for more a la carte by the glass options as opposed exactly. to bottles. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that being a thing too uh, when I was working up in the Finger Lakes. I think that could just be a New York City thing. There, there is such a heavy or a big city thing. You know, just that get a bottle culture. And I think that's in some part driven by the, the, the more big city wine director, sommelier culture. People like to, to get bottles on tables, etc. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, it overall, I think that it's, it sounds to me for any of our, Anybody who listens to this who who may be on the fence about leaving whatever big city they live in to go to one of some sort of more rural or resort or secluded area, it doesn't sound like it. it's all that huge of a change in terms of what you're going to be able to offer people at, a, at least uh, from what I gather from you, which I think is comforting and, and we should make sure that anybody who's stressing themselves out about this decision, whether or not to leave the big city for the, for the secluded rural resort, they can take comfort in knowing that they're going to be able to put themselves into their job and they're going to be able to introduce people to new products and, and essentially just work and at least take comfort in knowing that their skill set will, will translate in a place like at least where you're working and where I've worked. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, and it, there, it's just more and more like even just two nights ago, I met a group of gentlemen who were up from Brooklyn, own some places in the city and have just bought 
a place up here and are redoing it. I think you're going to see more and more of that. Um, so I, I think while people have already maybe discovered this as an escape, um, more and more people are going to, are going to discover it. And, um, I'm looking forward to that. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what the future holds and, you know, a timeline, but, um, I'm happy to be here. I feel fortunate that I had this as an opportunity and, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really, it's been fun. And I, I think finding those, that those positives out of, you know, uplifting your life that you've built for, you know, years in a city, um, and sort of, you know, abruptly, and it's a, it's a big, it's a big change, but I think finding those positives and seeing, um, learning new things, learning about a new area, um, meeting new people and navigating this, uh, new community has been, it's been really, it's been fun. Well, that, that's a good, sounds like this is a good moment to, to transition to just talk about the area because I like so many New Yorkers or, or Northeasterners or East Coasters or Midwestern, whoever it was that made it to the Adirondacks last summer for the first time ever. I mean, I was among them. I, after 10 years myself in New York City, I never once made it up to the Adirondacks until, uh, you know, as they say, it took a pandemic. Uh, I remember I was, when I was like four years old or something like that from Michigan, my family took a trip to Lake George. Um, but as an adult, I'd certainly never been there until last year. Uh, again, like so many New York, New Yorkers in particular, those living in New York City and other regions in the state, like the Finger Lakes, experience the same thing. Uh, and even in, even the Hudson Valley, where I live, which is so close to the city, last year, summer 2020, was so big for these areas. And I, I believe that we're going to see a very similar summer coming up, if not more intense. From what I've heard from from talking to people, places for rent, homes, apartments through Airbnb or VRBO are completely booked this yeah. far in advance all through the summer. Even in these early months like March and April, it is hard to rent a place in the Finger Lakes or the Adirondacks or the Hudson Valley. So this is – I mean it's really kind of bananas. So I want to get sort of the Brooks Frazier curated uh, tour guide for the Adirondacks. So let's just, let's go ahead and just assume that we don't we don't need to talk – Adirondacks Region 101. Anyone who listens to this podcast can Google or go ahead and call the the Adirondacks Park State Organization, whatever it is. I guarantee if you call them, they will be happy to send you brochures and maps and things like that. That is their job. Um, but anybody else who likes to to do all these things online can easily do a Google Adirondacks 101 search. And they're they're going to find the basics. So let's go a little bit more. Let, let's talk in a little bit closer detail about some of the things that you really like to do in the region. Why don't we start with just you know approaching the region from wherever it is you're coming from the city or you know from somewhere a little bit farther west. Um, pick a couple different areas to talk about. Um, in terms of beginning your vacation or where to where to set up a good home base? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, like you mentioned, finding places, uh, 
especially Airbnbs. It's a huge, huge business here um, for sure. So much so that um, finding housing was challenging for me. Um, but luckily there are plenty of great hotels to stay at, including Hotel Saranac. Um, and I think if you wanted to do an, a sort of beginner outdoor um, situation, staying either in Saranac Lake or Lake Placid and looking at some hiking. I mean, there are, there is everything from family friendly, bring your little dog hikes that are, you know, an hour or two out and back to serious overnight camping need to have, you know, full gear situations. So one of my, one of the things that I started when I was still living in New York was this little, I mean, I shouldn't call it little, it's six trails and they call it the Saranac six. Um, and it's six mountain peaks that are not part of the, um, high peaks. So there's 46 high peaks. I think there's technically maybe 47 or 48 now after, uh, some more accurate measurement, but, um, it's still called the 46. Um, but if you are not ready, um, to undertake a big, uh, commitment like that, there's the Saranac six and, uh, you know, there's one of those trails that I mentioned earlier, that's super family friendly Baker mountain, right in Saranac Lake. You can start there. Um, you know, the, the views when you get to the top are looking back on the town. Um, so in that way it is sort of unique because the rest of them, you are definitely more like in the mountains, in the, in the peaks. And, um, I would say, um, ampersand is one of my favorites ampersand mountain. So there's those six peaks um, there is a, um, little square in Saranac Lake right across from Hotel Saranac where there is a bell. Um, so they've done, you know, some, um, marketing for this, uh, for tourism, but there's a bell there. And once you've completed the Saranac six, you go into the town and you ring the bell. Um, and then I would assume that you would go have a celebratory cocktail, um, either right across the street or at Hotel Saranac, or there's a couple of other local, um, bars that you could go, um, indulge at. But, um, I think, yeah, the hiking, um, for me, that's a big, um, draw. Um, so that was one of my favorite things to, to complete. And then there's also smaller, uh, the Tupper Lake has a, like a three mountain challenge and then, Lake Placid has, I think it's nine. So there's three, six, nine to, to complete the, the tri-lakes. And then you could move on to the bigger challenge of the 46 high peaks. Um, so yeah, I think something like that is a good place to start, uh, in getting outdoors. And then there's also, you know, much easier, um, more like take a stroll in the woods kind of places that are, um, available to people as well. Um, here in specifically in Lake Placid, like trail running that I've, I've also started to sort of get into that. I, you know, in the city, you don't really have the opportunity to trail run unless you're maybe up, um, in Northern Manhattan or the Bronx. Um, but yeah, um, the hiking was, a, it was a huge draw for a lot of people. 
And this is a a massive area. I mean, when I was there last summer for the first time, even just from one of the more medium-sized peaks, getting that aerial view, it's just amazing. I mean, you you forget that this is even in New York State. I mean, it, it is just, you know, these Appalachian mountain peaks for as far as the eye can see. It is extraordinary. And for anyone who has not been there, it's again, it is just so easy to forget that that this incredible nature exists in New York State. I wanna I wanna shift for a minute. We'll come back to um, talking more about summer recreation. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the winter because we're we're just getting you're just getting out of winter up there. And there's a lot of fun stuff to do in the winter. And and we were all pretty bored this winter because for the most part, I mean, it was still hardcore pandemic, and most you know, some people were okay with getting on a plane and, and traveling, but for those who wanted to keep it more regional, um, winter recreation up there, obviously a big deal because there was the winter Olympics. So like any sort of winter sport, I would imagine is celebrated in, in, especially in the Lake Placid area. What are some of the things to do in the winter? Oh yeah. So, I mean, there's white face, which, um, you know, is, is a very impressive mountain. Um, it is. And I feel like it gets, for whatever reason, uh, it's not talked about as much as some of the the places in Vermont or New Hampshire or even Hunter mountain, but Whiteface has the highest vertical of any ski resort on the East coast. That's true. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, they joke about the East coast being the ice coast and it's true to some degree, but I would say this winter we had really good conditions for skiing and snowboarding. And that's obviously one of the biggest draws, but there's a huge, there's a huge opportunity to do cross country skiing, snowshoeing. Um, there are, you know, outfits now that are doing, you can rent snowmobiles, which is very fun. Um, and you know, it takes minimal, um, physical effort. Uh, and, ice fishing, um, which I, you know, only once I went out on the ice, uh, but I got to see lots of people doing it, um, driving to and from work. Um, so that's, that's another thing. Um, and then here in Placid, there's, you know, you could go ice skating. Um, there was a couple of times where I, my, there's a, there was a coffee shop that opened right across the street from the oval, um, which is by the Olympic Center um, in Lake Placid, and there were people just, you know, lined up, waiting to to get out on the ice. Um, they were, you know, controlling how many people were out there because of social distancing. But yeah, I mean, and then there's a they do the sky. I think it's called Sky Coaster, um, which is uh, tied to the ski jumps, which you can see, you know, when you're heading sort of out of Lake Placid on the other side. Um, heading towards like Keene and Keene Valley, um, these huge structures that like seemingly come out of nowhere um, where they did the ski jumps um, in the Olympics. And that's also a big draw. Um, And yeah, so there are so many activities, family friendly, you know, and we did have a lot of families um, staying at the hotel and doing um, these winter activities over the winter. Uh, Whiteface was a little challenging, I know for some, because um, with, with COVID you had to have reservations and the weekends sold out often quickly, but there's others, there's another smaller mountain called Titus and they do night skiing, um, which is 
which is great. And I heard a lot of, I, I didn't make it there myself this winter, but um, I heard a lot of good uh, feedback from families about Titus Mountain as well. So yeah, you can find plenty of winter. And then, you know, there's places that um, you can build outdoor fires all winter, um, some of the hotels here. Um, so yeah, there's there's so much to do. Okay. Let's uh, let's shift back since we're we're headed into summer right now. Um, what are, are are some of the areas in particular, like in terms of camping, that you would recommend that people check out? Because I know those sites are booking up fast as well, and you do need to reserve. Yeah. Uh, before I, I want to talk about Cranberry Lake, I did want to mention that the in the past couple of days, um, I was listening to NPR um, on my way to work as as I do. Um, North Country Public Radio, um, and they had there had been like whispers about um, some sort of reservation system for some of the parking for the trailheads, and they actually did just are putting into effect for this season, this going into spring summer, that you will need reservations, which will be you will be able to make online, and I'm assuming the phone, but um that you will need uh, reservations for parking for some of the trailheads because it was becoming a, a safety issue, um, which anecdotally, I've been told that that 2020 was the busiest that the the peaks have ever been. And you could just see it driving up through cars parked along the side of the road um, well beyond where the trailheads are. So it'll be interesting to see how, um, you know, you find that balance between preserving what we have, but also sharing it with people. So I think this pilot program, the reservations are free, but you have to have a reservation. So I think it'll be interesting to see how um, that plays out uh, and whether that will move on to other um, trailheads. But uh, camping wise, I'm not super familiar yet with anything in the Tri-Lakes area, but I am familiar with Cranberry Lake, which is just about, I don't know, it's probably about an hour from, from here, um, from Saranac Lake and Lake Placid. They have the state campgrounds, um, which are open from May through October. And I know last summer, from what I heard, they were sold out from when they opened to, uh, till closing. And I'm not sure if they didn't sell all the campsites because of this, the need to socially distance in like the public areas. Cause they have, you know, public showers and bathrooms and everything um, on site, but um, you couldn't get a reservation at Cranberry Lake to uh, for the campgrounds. I think it's 20 bucks a night. Um, and we camped there when I was younger, even though it was very close to home. Um, Cranberry Lake and Star Lake are about 15 minutes away from each other. Um, so there's this dedicated state campground um, where, you know, you drive, you, drive in through the gate and you there's there's numbered campsites some of them are on the water and some of them are just across the street but there's a public beach um and then as i mentioned you know facilities for bathrooms and showers um there's a public boat launch uh in cranberry lake as well but in addition to that um state campground there are also other state campsites peppered throughout the region um 
believe they refer to them as primitive sites, um, which need to be, you need to access by hiking or by boat. Um, some of them are, are on islands in, in, in Cranberry Lake. So I think Cranberry Lake, uh, it, I believe it's the third largest lake in the Adirondacks. It's a, it's a massive lake. It's a man-made lake. Um, it's beautiful. Uh, but yeah, there are islands uh, peppered through throughout and there's campsites and from primitive to, so you're just talking about maybe there's a little fire pit because people have built it um, to places that have these beautiful lean-tos that are maintained by the DEC, the Department of Environmental Conservation, which my dad actually worked for for years. So there's those. And everything's first come, first serve as far as those go. So, you know, if you want one of those, you've got to make a plan and, you know, get there and get your stuff set up. Um, and I did last summer in Cranberry Lake uh, another one of these sort of hiking challenges, uh, which is called the Cranberry Lake 50, which is a 50 mile hike you do over the course of a couple of days, um, unless you're, um, really intense and diehard. We did actually see some people that were doing it, like just doing it all at once without stopping, which seems really crazy. But, um, yeah, the Cranberry Lake 50, you can do it. We did it. And I think we did three nights and you can do it full, you know, carry in, carry out only what you have, what you have, or you can do what we did, which is be supported by, um, luckily my, my father and my mother, um, you can access, there's campsites along the, the lake where you can just pull up in a boat. So we were very lucky. And my dad, <laughs> some, some beer, cause you don't want to be carrying beer, um, in a pack that's already, uh, you know, 30 pounds. So, um, I would say Cranberry Lake for me, just because I'm the most familiar and I think there's so much opportunity there. Um, but I am looking forward to exploring a little bit more up here in Saranac Lake and Lake Placid as far as camping goes, uh, this coming summer. So yeah, Cranberry Lake. Cool. Cranberry Lake is huge also. Mm -hmm. I mean, for, for anybody who, who's just trying to get a visual, these are, these are really, really big, big inland lakes. Um, what are some of the, if any, regional like food dishes? Because when I think of Western, upstate Western New York, there are a couple sort of regional specialties over there. And I'm curious, do, is there anything like that in the Adirondacks region? Oh, I don't, I don't know. Um, well, I guess, I mean, like stuff like venison when it's in oh, season, yeah. obviously. I mean, because there's, there's, it's a big area for hunting and fishing, yeah. obviously. And um, like, are, are, are like the, you know, something like the lake trout or lake perch, things like that. Do you see those freshwater fish around in restaurants? You know, I am looking forward to seeing what that looks like this summer because I didn't get out much, um, but I, I do definitely think for me having my dad be an outdoorsman and a hunter and a fisher i've been so lucky I literally catch a fish and then cook it for dinner um so yeah definitely these beautiful um all different kinds of trout brook trout um and that yeah i mean adirondack surf and turf is venison and trout like without a doubt um and i would love to see how that looks 
going into hopefully a summer that has a little bit more, um, I hate to use the word, word normalcy, but like, you know, just I'm looking forward to seeing what, what local places do and, and visiting more local places. Because like I said, I didn't really get out much, um, you know, over the summer. And then once it was winter and you, the access to be, to having the outdoor option, which sort of was nice, um, when that was gone, I didn't really get out. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what people do, but yeah, I, I, um, I do see lots of places using local vendors and farms, um, and there's creameries up here. There's, you know, along with the breweries, there's, they're making cheese and there's local farms. Um, we just got a bunch of ducks from a local farm, um, at the hotel. So yeah, I'm looking forward to, to seeing a little bit more of that and, and having the opportunity to explore and try things. Cool. Let's, um, let's sort of finish up by talking about some of the wildlife in, in the area, in particular, some of the larger critters like bears and moose. Yeah. Now I think that it is, th- this to me is insane. So I grew up in Michigan where in the state of Michigan, mostly up in the way up in the North, there are approximately 10,000 black bear, give or take. Now I've spent a lot of time in, in Northern Michigan. I've never, never saw a bear there. When I, once upon a time when I was a touring musician, I can remember being in places like uh, Colorado and Washington and getting out into the mountains and going for a walk or a hike on these trails. And you get to a point where there will be a sign. And it's like, you are now entering bear country. I was looking for bears. And the insane thing to me is I never saw a bear in my life. And then last summer, even down here in the Hudson Valley where I live, I'm driving down the Taconic, like a mile and a half from where I live, and all of a sudden, a freaking huge black bear runs across the Taconic Parkway, and that's only two hours from New York City. It and and it's it, they get even closer than that. I mean, there's something that uh, many New York City people know about, which is called Bear Mountain, which is a, a park just an hour north of the city, and it's called Bear Mountain for a reason. It blows my mind that there are these huge freaking mammals like bears an hour from outside of New York City. And certainly even more of them when you get out into the mountainous areas of the Catskills and the Adirondacks. I have it on good authority that you saw a bear in your backyard last summer. So what... So there's definitely bears. And if you go out hiking, you might see one. Oh, yeah. But in the Adirondacks, I think that's the only area in New York State where there are also moose. Isn't that right? I I think so. I mean, I personally, I've seen bear. I mean, growing up, <laughs> when we were kids, we would go to the dump and watch the bears at the dump. Like, it was like a thing. Um but no, I, I did see there was a bear, uh, the, the Young's Road bear. Um, so I grew up on a, a road in Star Lake called Young's Road. And there was a bear prowling around uh, for a couple, it was probably, a, you know, the, a week or two that it was getting into people's garbage and making a mess of everything. Um, but I have never seen a moose here. I've only seen moose up in Canada, um, in Nova Scotia on Cape Breton Island. That is the only place I've seen moose, but people have seen moose, um, 
uh, in this area. And there are, you know, the signs that with the moose, um, that, you know, the caution signs that, that, so I hope I would love to see a moose here. Um, but yeah. And then, you know, uh, everything, uh, lots of turkeys, white-tailed deer, raccoons, uh, coyotes, which, you know, keep your cats indoors, um, birds like crazy. Oh my God. I know, I know we're talking about large mammals, but all the birds. Um, and then my parents even had a Bob, have a bobcat that comes around in the backyard. Um, my mom has a little, a little video and picture of a bobcat that visited them. So yeah, I mean, it's the opportunity to see, um, animals like that are, is abound. And I have luckily did not see a bear on my hike, but I, um, I know my friend Ethan did when that, but that was down in the Hudson Valley as well. So, um, yeah, luckily we did not cross any bears path, uh, on the Cranberry Lake 50 when we did that big hike. And I've never seen them, um, doing any of the mountain peak hikes up here yet. So, but yeah, they're here for sure. Very cool. All right. Anything else that you're dying to let the world know about, uh, your beloved region of the Adirondacks? Um, I'm dying to let people, uh, I guess just to sort of maybe go back to the, when I mentioned about the, having to make reservations for hiking, I think for the most part, people want to do the right thing and do do the right thing. But I would just say, um, not to get like preachy, but, um, to educate yourself, um, not only, you know, for, to preserve what we have. Um, you know, there's a, the leave no trace. And if you don't know what that phrase means, um, you should definitely do your research before you come up. Um, we, we want to keep this region open and available to as many people as possible. So I think, um, knowing what you're getting into, um, and being prepared, um, but also for your safety, like, uh, you know, you will read fairly regularly, uh, about, rescues that have to happen because people are unprepared, um, when they go out, um, you know, you think you're going out for a out and back day hike, um, and you end up getting off the trail and your phone dies. And so I, I would just say, um, that, you know, while we welcome people with open arms and look forward to hosting, uh, visitors to just be, just to take a, a little bit of time to educate yourself, uh, whether that's, you know, through Google or talking to locals, um, or guides. Um, I think it's really important, uh, to keep, to keep what we have the way it is so that we can keep enjoying it for, you know, years and years to come. Very good advice. Yeah. Cool. Well, this has been a super fun conversation. Check out a previous episode which uh, in which I talked to Brittany Gibson, which uh, was all about the Finger Lakes, in particular the Seneca Lake Wine Trail. So listeners, check that out to get your summer recreation ideas for the Finger Lakes. Of course, you'll listen to this episode with Brooks about the Adirondacks, and then we'll do episodes coming up about the Hudson Valley Catskills and uh, Long Island, North Fork, South Fork areas as well. So... Brooks, thank you again, and have a great service tonight. Thank you, Paul Brady. Talk soon.